You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie in the U.S. And I'm Johanna in Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. That's right. Today we have a lot to cover, and so I think it's best if we jump right in. Yeah, we do. We have so much to talk about. Last week we covered fire and earthquake safety, and we aren't going to recap that, except to remind you to check your house fire and carbon monoxide alarms, please. Be sure they're in date and working. For fire, we remember to stop, drop, and roll, and then you evacuate, right? The most important things to remember with all disasters are the three P's. Plan, prepare, and practice, especially if you have children. Today's sources, in addition to the same as last week, y'all, this is one of those episodes where there are just a lot of sources, but... Primarily, we're looking at uh, NOAA's Severe Storms Laboratory, weather.gov, and other weather websites. I also created, did I mention, Johanna, last week that I created this massive YouTube playlist? Right. So when I was homesick, I was watching all of these disaster documentaries thinking about maybe doing this episode. So maybe we can link the, what's it called, YouTube playlist that I watched in the show notes, so so that'll be easier for people to find, because there are a lot of, there's a lot. If you want to, if you want to deep dive, check out that playlist. Yeah, definitely. All right. Today, we're picking up where we left off last week, and we're talking tsunamis. But first, there's one aspect of earthquakes and tsunamis that you know that we in particular have to cover. And that is to answer the question, can animals sense these disasters before we can? The answer is complicated, but the main theory is that they can either hear the infrasound of a massive wave or a quake or feel it before we can. The scientific community technically says, no, animals don't predict these events, but I don't know. I think there's enough anecdotal evidence recorded for millennia to indicate that, mm, I think they can. I mean, not in a, not in a, not in a fortune teller sort of way. Not yeah, yeah, in, not a, in a looking at the glass bowl. Exactly, yeah. right? It's, it's, we know it's because of their senses, but there were countless accounts. That's a bad phrasing. There were countless accounts. There were so many accounts of flamingos and elephants running for higher ground prior to the Boxing Day tsunami. It's used all the time as a trope in disaster movies. You know, all the animals running one way, which I love. And by the way, Paul and I have agreed if we ever see animals just running in one direction, we're following. Even if we have no idea what's going on, if we see animals running, fucking follow the animals. Yeah, I 1000% agree. I'm one of the people who absolutely believe that certain animals can sense these things in advance. In my opinion, it would be just absolutely logical, right? Because their senses are so much different from, from our senses. I mean, there are dogs who can smell cancer, for fuck's sake. Of course, exactly. Yeah, and as you say, there's, there's just too much anecdotal evidence out there. There really is. And one of the, one of the YouTube videos that is on that list is a really in-depth one, kind of about this exact subject. And they talk about a study that was done where they happened to realize they were doing a different study on dogs. They were studying, 
I can't remember what they were studying. It doesn't matter. But there happened to be an earthquake, and they realized that animals were behaving anxiously prior to the earthquake. There was even an instance in China, I want to say, where a bunch of animals acting strangely caused them to evacuate and saved a bunch of lives because an earthquake hit. So yeah, there's anecdotal evidence, but it's a lot of anecdotal evidence, right? Yeah. So there are a number of causes for tsunamis, but what we're most focused on today are the ones that are results of an earthquake, a volcanic eruption, or a landslide. Last week, we mentioned the tectonic plates, which make up the Earth's crust and upper mantle. They each have pretty much their own agenda and place to go, and they're always moving, constantly moving. Sometimes they slide along side by side, like California's San Andreas Fault. And one day, a long, long time from now, Los Angeles will be pushed north to the San Francisco Bay Area, but that's not going to happen in our lifetime. And sometimes they get stuck, and the release from the tension building up is an earthquake. In other faults where two plates meet, they may have been butting heads for millennia, forming the Earth's mountain ranges. Sometimes, rather than forcing each other upward, what can happen is that one plate slowly slides under or over the other plate. Just think about it that way. Imagine pushing two pieces of paper together on a table. Sometimes they hit edges and make a mountain. Sometimes one slides over the other after getting stuck. And when one plate is forced beneath the other into the Earth's center, this process is called subduction. And this only happens in the ocean, because the oceanic plates are topped with basalt and therefore heavy enough to sink, and continental plates float. The most well-known example of this kind of fault is, of course, the Ring of Fire (laughs) in the Pacific Ocean, where 80% of tsunamis occur. Don't do it, Annie. I'm not. I'm not. I promise. (laughs) This is also how ocean trenches are formed, making them the deepest places we know of on Earth as deep as 1,000 kilometers below the seafloor. And this is all normal movement of plates, but these plates, they always eventually get stuck, and they stay stuck for a long time, maybe 200 years, maybe 300 years, or even longer, before they generate enough pent-up force to finally break through. When that happens, the energy is like several atomic bombs, many, many, many times the Halifax explosion. That's how much force is released in this fault shift. And that released energy is what causes an earthquake. But it can also shift the seafloor, causing a huge displacement and therefore a tsunami. When a tsunami is initially formed, it's a small wave. And there are a lot of them. Think of dropping a pebble into the water, causing ripples. Or if you're investigating chaos theory at an amusement park and there's a T-Rex approaching, ripples. (laughs) Exactly right. Well, these ripples start to move across the open ocean at a rapid rate as fast as a jet plane around 800 kilometers an hour or 500 miles per hour. Interestingly, if you're out at sea, you may have no idea that tsunami waves, and I mean it waves because there's always several, it's not just one, you may have no idea that they're passing beneath you. This has led to countless fishing vessels returning to port to find their whole village gone, their families gone, everything destroyed. The reason these waves aren't dangerous out at sea is that they start out miles wide and deep, moving fast, they will eventually reach land, but until then, they're only maybe a foot high at sea. 
The ocean floor becomes shallower as you reach the land, slowing the waves, which get hit from behind by the faster waves, causing the wave to grow slower and taller and taller as it approaches land. This sometimes causes a suction pulling water from the beach into the wave. This is an early sign of trouble. One sign of an approaching tsunami is the sea retreating, but this doesn't always happen. It may also rise rapidly like a tide suddenly coming in rather than looking like a traditional wave. People used to use the term tidal wave interchangeably with the word tsunami, which means harbor wave in Japanese. Uh, Japan is one of the countries most affected by these destructive waves. Using the term tidal wave has kind of fallen out of favor because scientists don't want confusion that they have anything to do with tides. That's a completely different thing. So what do you do if you notice some of these visual clues or hear the roar of a wave? What if there's an earthquake and you're near the coast? Well, first, if there's a quake, I'm sure you remember from last week that you drop to the ground, cover yourself under a table or desk and hold onto that furniture until it's safe. As they say in New Zealand, yeah, if it's long or strong, get gone. I think <laughs> I thought that was a really good, like, they had a good way to remember things. So what they mean by that is basically, if you feel a powerful quake and are within a mile of the coast, move to high ground immediately, right? Yeah, go. If you can hear or see the wave, it's probably already too late to outrun it, I'd say. So get to the highest ground you can, which is at least the fourth floor of the sturdiest building you can get to. You ideally want to walk, run, or bicycle an evacuation route as cars may cause or will cause traffic jam. Yeah, in that movie with the asteroid and the tsunami, which, <laughs> you know, it's another legit but rare cause of devastating waves is uh, asteroids. Exactly. Yeah. Ideally, you want an off-road motorbike, for example. That yeah, would be best. That's the best. But do what you can to get at least two miles or three kilometers inland and over 100 feet or 30 meters above sea level. And if you're in an earthquake and you live along the coast, which is a lot of the world's population, to be honest, you need to have a plan and get moving. The first wave might not be the largest. So when you get to a safe location, stay put. Stay for several hours to be sure the waves have passed. Be aware that water may be electrified, by the way. Yeah, don't spend six hours clinging to a tree just to get electrocuted when you get down, all right? Definitely. Yeah, that would suck. Yeah, that would be... I'm sure that's happened to somebody. That's awful. Only recently are tsunami shelters being built more frequently. These are designed for vertical evacuation as standalone towers with platforms. I even saw one as the roof on a purposefully designed building. I think it was a school gymnasium where like the roof is designed as a tsunami shelter. Everyone can go on the top of the roof. And if they are hit with a tsunami, that area, the gymnasium is specifically designed so the walls will blow out and the water will just flow through. Everyone will be safe on top of the roof. That's cool. Which is smart, right? Another cause of tsunami are landslides and volcanic eruptions. When we were in Norway, we visited Helsilt in the Gerengerford, and there's an area with a widening crack. So that morning, some of our group went out kayaking, and they came back, and we were like, how was it? And they said, it was amazing. It was beautiful. Also, did you know that there's a mountain over there with a crack in it, and any day now... It's just going to collapse into the fjord, causing an enormous tsunami and killing everyone in its path. 
And I was like, wow. And they were like, yeah, they were doing tests on it. So they were testing while they were out kayaking. It's very heavily monitored. I'm sure it's all fine. (sighs) But yeah, anytime it could happen. The largest ever tsunami was in Alaska in 1958. And in this case, a landslide caused a tsunami to roar toward the very narrow bay in Latuya, Alaska. Normally, the maximum height on a tsunami wave is around 100 feet or 30 meters, which is huge and terrifying. Yeah. But here's the thing. In the last 170 years, Latuya Bay has had four tsunamis that were over 100 feet. In 1854, they had one of 395 feet or 120 meters. In 1899, slightly smaller one, 200 feet or 61 meters. And in 1936, they had one of 490 feet or 150 meters, which are all huge. The good thing is I don't think it's very populated area because in 1958, the height of the wave was 1,720 feet, or 520 meters tall. You heard that right. 1,720 feet, or 520 meters. Amazingly, only two fatalities. The biggest issue were just, I can't even count how many trees, like massive trees. You can see the landscape. And you can see where the wave hit because that's where the growth stopped. It's the largest tsunami ever recorded. And this was the event that proved to scientists the theory that landslides could cause a tsunami. I guess Mother Earth had a point to make on that one. It's like, yes, they do. Boom. Terrifying. It's just, it's scary. That's too much of a wave. It's too much water. It's too much. I don't want it. (laughs) Water is honestly, I think, the scariest. I'm personally most afraid of wind, but water, I think, is actually the scariest of all the elements. Yeah. Anyway. You don't think fire is more scary? I don't know. No, not in the long term, because fire, maybe. I just mean overall in terms of, like, most devastating long term. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, water, I think, is the scariest. Maybe. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, my goodness, I'm really glad that I don't live in the Pacific. Well, let me tell you about this island off the coast of Africa called La Palma. It's part of the Canary Islands, and there's a volcano on it. It's a big one. Do I not have the name of it? <laughs> something vieja. I can't remember. It's like the old something. Anyway, there's a big old, there's a big old volcano. <laughs> I think I cut a lot of stuff out because I didn't want to bog people down with like minute details. Anyway, there's a giant volcano, and it's due to erupt. And there's a theory that an eruption of the volcano could cause a landslide, which would cause tsunamis in the Atlantic, striking the east coast of the United States. There is a very dramatic documentary on that in the YouTube playlist. There's also one on the North Sea tsunami, which ravaged the current UK after a landslide in present-day Norway, but this was back in, like, 6200 BC, right? Not a recent problem, but don't think that these things can't happen. Because while another isn't likely, it's not impossible. And as travel is becoming more and more accessible around the world, more people are going to find themselves visiting places where these events are more and more common. Last week, I do want to mention, and this week, we aren't really 
getting too deep into the specifics of these events. I know you're probably like, wow, you guys usually go into really deep detail about personal stories and, and, you know, facts, but a lot of these will probably be covered in their own episodes. That said, the reason that there were so many deaths in recent events like the Boxing Day and Japanese tsunamis is that they happen so infrequently that there often comes a point where there are no survivors left to warn others. And so after a few hundred years, people get complacent. So it's just really important to remember that these events happen and to remember that survival is possible. Last week, we touched on the May 1960 earthquake, which was the strongest ever recorded at a 9.5. The following survival account is from the Pacific Tsunami Museum, which is at tsunami.org. And this is talking about the tsunamis caused by that quake, which rocked the Pacific. And one of them was in Hilo, Hawaii. And so this is a survivor account that I just thought was kind of, it's a good one. Quote, on Sunday afternoon, May 22nd, 1960, word was received in Hilo that an earthquake in Chile had generated a tsunami that would arrive at about midnight. Fusayo Ito felt safe and secure in her home in Waikia. After all, tsunamis typically did not affect that area. Fusayo even invited her friends, who lived near to the water, to spend the night at her house. They spent a pleasant evening visiting and listening to the radio for news. As 1 a.m. approached without event, Fusayo and her friends surmised that the tsunami, if there was one, was over. Her friends departed, while Fusayo said goodbye at the door. At 1.04 a.m., she was completely taken by surprise when there was a deafening roar as the 35-foot tsunami wave brought down her house around her. She was hit on the head and lost consciousness. Her next recollection was of coming to and finding herself swirling around in the bushes that lined the Wailoa River. Clinging to her screen door, she was washed up and down the river several times, and then finally, carried out into Hilo Bay amidst all the debris. Unable to swim, she spent the night riding the waves, plunging down into each trough only to be brought up again, swallowing water and clinging for her life. She was so scared that she couldn't even cry, and she spent the night drifting farther and farther from shore. By morning's light, she found herself out past the breakwater. By now, she had made peace with her destiny, and a serenity took over, that she described as beautiful. A pilot flying into Hilo that morning spotted something flash in the water and reported it to the Coast Guard, who went out to investigate. Fusayo saw them approach and thought it was a ghost ship until she heard the sound of human voices. Taken to Hilo Hospital, her first reaction was to hug everyone she met. She thought she would never again see another human being. Fusayo had a daughter with whom she was very close. Through the years, she purchased savings bonds for her daughter. She kept them zippered in a satchel in her home. Everything Fusayo owned was lost in the waves, including her satchel with the savings bonds. Fusayo went to live with her daughter as far away from the ocean as possible. The cleanup process in Hilo took months. Six months later, a bulldozer operator who stepped down to make an adjustment to his equipment spied a zippered satchel on the ground. Opening it up, he found the dirt-encrusted savings bonds with the names clearly visible. He turned them into police. 
A call from the police department brought Fusayo down to collect her bonds, which she described as her second miracle of this event. End quote. That's amazing, isn't it? It's just such a testament to our will to survive, and she was so lucky. Most people killed in tsunamis die because of drowning or blunt force or crush injuries because there's Mm. so much in that water with you. If you don't know how to swim, we really, really encourage you to look into lessons. Look into family lessons at your local pool or YMCA if you're in the U.S. Yeah. I think it's also good to remember young Tilly Smith from the U.K. who was on vacation with her family in Thailand. And she recognized the surf behaving strangely. She was 11 years old and she had just studied tsunamis at school. And she insisted her family leave immediately. They listened, thankfully, and they fled and others followed to a local hotel and they had made it to the second floor when the wave hit. Those with her survived with minor injuries and she has been called the angel of the beach and is credited with saving 100 lives that day. So you see, knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. The 2004 Indian Ocean tsunamis had the energy of 23,000 atomic bombs and tsunamis retain energy, they don't get weaker before impact, and they slammed into 11 countries, killing a total of 283,000 people. Before we get into more storm safety, let's do a quick reminder of thunderstorm safety. So get into a building or car when you hear thunder. Avoid using anything that's plugged in, and avoid running water, that's also important. Uh, Also, when I'm at home, like, when was that? In last fall, and I had the windows open, I always sleep with the windows open if it's still warm enough, right? And it started raining, and I swear to God, all of a sudden, lightning struck just like maybe 10 meters from the house. Ooh. And it was so scary. It was so loud. Leela ran away and hid, and I obviously closed the windows immediately and unplugged everything. What else? Pay attention to weather reports and alerts, of course. If you're on your way home and encounter flooding, remember turn around. Don't try to drive through. Don't drown. It's so easy to underestimate the power of moving water. Never drive through flooded roads. Just six inches of fast moving water can knock you down and water that reaches your knee, if it's fast moving water, can wash your car away. No problem at all. And it can total the electric system. As with all disasters, pay special attention to power lines and tree risks around you. Be mindful of the dangers of wind and stay away from windows. And it is maybe a good time to discuss your microburst, which you had not long ago at your house, at your home, I think. Yeah, it was not long after. I think it was 2020. To quote weather meteorologist Britta Merwin, quote, A microburst is when a thunderstorm is kind of falling apart and decaying and the updraft collapses. And that means all of the air rushes down from the thunderstorm to the ground with a massive burst of air, end quote. I just wanted to find a professional's, what's the word, description of a microburst. And when this happens, you can have winds of 100 miles an hour or more, like an F1 tornado. We had at least seven very tall black locust trees come down, and we lost a big limb from a maple tree. And then a catalpa tree fell on the house, probably a hundred-year-old catalpa tree fell on the house, and we were very, very lucky to have no damage. It was remarkable. I'll share the video of the crane taking the tree off the house. I also want to mention that tree safety really is no joke. You'll all remember my cousin Josh was killed by a falling tree in an unusually severe storm while camping 
with his fiancée in Vermont last fall. And a lot of the time, as was the case with my cousin, there's nothing you can do about a a one-in-a-million accident. Prepare, be smart, and don't live your life afraid, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Tree safety is very important. There are two huge trees that we really need to take care of in our yard. There are huge, old, really old ash trees. Uh, One is growing not really over the roof, but kind of next to the roof of the barn. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is not that big of a problem because that, that roof is, is done for anyway and we have to replace it. But the other one is the bigger problem because one branch is growing over to our neighbors and it's also close to our liquid gas tank. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't want to cut the trees down completely. They are healthy. You can remove those branches. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We had them looked at. They are unusually healthy for, for old ash trees. Old ash trees can have a lot of troubles. Yeah, we definitely have to cut the branches that could cause trouble in the long run. And, and that's it. Right. You know, it's just tree yeah. safety, being smart, knowing what's around you, where it could fall yeah. in case of an emergency. And in the case of the microburst, they all fell in the same direction. So we had seven huge trees that all fell left to right across. I have a video I'll, I'll share with you guys uh, from right after it happened, but it was wild. Oh, also, on a lighter note, I don't think in this episode, these two episodes, we're going to be talking about snow events. That's going to be a different episode. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention, while we're talking about thunderstorms, my favorite, which is thunder snow. It's much rarer than thunderstorms. The lightning is usually cloud to cloud, but it's very dangerous. So it's good that it's more cloud to cloud. And it can be deadly cold and terribly windy with with very heavy snowfall. I don't think I've ever seen that. It's my favorite. I've seen it. It's rare. It's rare. I've only seen it three or four times, um, but I was born during the May 10th, 1997 thunder snowstorm. So, yeah, huh. I thought that was interesting. Just the last time we had it, the news was like, the last big thunder snow we had was May 10th, 1977. And that's how I found out that I was born during the... Next, we have one of the scariest, I think, as far as we're concerned... Which is funny because that's something that usually, it wasn't a thing back when I was a kid, but I, it still scared me as a kid because <laughs> of <laughs> the <laughs> Wizard <laughs> of Oz, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Tornadoes. Yeah. Tornadoes. In the southern US, peak tornado season is March to May, and in the north, it's later spring through summer. But peak means most active. That doesn't mean that's the only time they appear because they can happen anytime. So a tornado is a narrow, violently rotating column of air that extends from a thunderstorm to the ground. Tornadoes happen everywhere in the world apart from Antarctica because they need warm, moist air to form. So it hasn't happened there yet, but who knows, it could in the future. If we have any listeners in Antarctica, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you experienced there. (laughs) I wonder who our most remote listeners are, actually. So... Tornadoes are rated using the enhanced Fujita scale according to the amount of damage they cause. So EF0 is 65 to 85 miles per hour, that's considered to be light. Then we have EF1, 86 to 109 miles per hour, which is moderate. And it goes up all the way to EF5, which is 200 to 234 miles per hour, which is, I have no idea how much it is in kilometers per hour. If you think the US of A has the most tornadoes, you'd be right, with about 1,200 a year, way more than the rest of the world. But you may be surprised to learn that England actually holds the Guinness World Record for the highest number of tornadoes by square kilometer 
uh, or square mile, thanks to its much smaller total land area, obviously. The difference so far is that in the UK and Ireland, you'll see a lot of funnels that don't touch down. And the ones that do are generally weaker with less damage and uh, way less loss of life. Argentina and Bangladesh have some of the highest concentration of tornadoes outside of the US. Tornadoes often strike in the afternoon or evening, which is particularly scary, but basically it can happen anytime though. Alright, so what do we do in the event of a tornado? Pay attention to weather alerts. So if there's tornado watch, that means that conditions are right for a tornado. If a watch is happening, keep a close eye on the weather reports and begin to get ready to go to your designated shelter space. A warning means a tornado has been sighted and you should get to shelter. Tornadoes are not always visible, in fact they're almost always invisible. It's just the dirt and dust and debris that they sweep up on their way that makes them visible, sometimes creating a debris ball. Sometimes they have no funnels, sometimes if it's pouring rain they're very hard to see. They can happen in bright sunshine, which for me is the scariest, I think, on the outer edge of a system. You may hear a roar, often described as like a train, just a constant rumbling or roaring. Hail or a green tinge to the sky are often warning signs. I think also yellow. Like when, here when we have hail, you have like yellow sky. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's very still and not windy at all before a tornado. They can last for a few moments or up to hours and they can touch down shockingly fast. It's a myth that opening windows equalizes pressure so they don't break. It's all going to break. Stay the hell away from the windows, please. Yeah, don't run to open open all your windows no. when there's a... Just don't. Yeah, that goes for every scenario we talked about and we'll be talking about. Stay away from windows and stay away from glass in general. What you want to do is uh, you want to have a plan for where the safest space in your home is. Flying debris is your greatest risk of injury. So looking back on our Halifax coverage, you'll know exactly the kinds of wounds we're talking about. I don't want to repeat it here now. No. If you have a storm shelter, that's your best bet. Next is a basement. Once in the basement, try to get yourself under something sturdy, like a table or, I don't know, a workbench. Cover yourself with something dense, like an old mattress. Pay attention to where really heavy items in your home are, like fridge or, uh, like Annie mentioned last week, the baby grand piano. Protect the baby grand. Try not to be uh, next to it, maybe. Yeah, directly under it. That's not the best idea. Yeah. (laughs) If you have no basement, get to the lowest floor and into a small interior room with no outside walls. Maybe a bathroom, a closet or under the stairs, where I am right now, that's probably where I would be. Get as low as you can and cover your head and neck with your hands. Try to cover yourself with a mattress, blankets or any other padding you can grab. One thing you do hear from survivors, unless I'm imagining this, I feel like I've heard repeatedly is that they survived because they got into a metal bathtub and put a ma- pulled a mattress over themselves. There have also been really, really devastating cases, more than one, where people have successfully shielded their children or spouses from projectiles using their own body, giving their lives to save their kids, for example, which we can all understand. But hopefully, yeah. if you're hearing this and you're kind of thinking about, you know, where, where to keep stuff? Our house has a basement and our last dog, Tucker, was too big to do stairs. So on more than one occasion, I went into the downstairs closet with him. I've podcasted there during road work too, but it's small in there. 
Opus and Beanie can do the stairs, so this episode is reminding me that I, I should talk to Paul and figure out where exactly to go in the basement, probably by the fireplace. You have your wine cellar, or would you stay where you are? We, we do, but I'm honestly not sure if I would hide out down there. The, the structure, there needs to be some remodeling done before I would do that. But we have a lot of well-maintained wine cellars here, uh, just up the, the main road. One was used as an air raid shelter during World War II, and I think that's probably where I would run to with the dogs, or I'd hide here in this little space under under the staircase. If you'd asked me three years ago, I would have laughed about the idea of a tornado here, but just two years ago, there was a tornado taking down roofs not far from here, mostly hit villages across the border in Czech Republic, uh, while we here had a fuck ton of hail damage. Because of that, that. that weather condition. Yeah, they, they, the hail balls were like tennis ball sized and up. Our roof was okay, but there was a lot of damage. A lot. Yeah. Of our car, our car has a lot of hail damage. Hail during thunderstorms and tornadoes and hurricanes is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, it is. Just on its own. It is. Yeah. If you live in a high-rise, get to the lowest floor possible, staying away from windows again. Avoid elevators and opt for interior stairways, which can often be the safest place to shelter. If you live in a mobile home or a manufactured home, get the hell out. Yeah. Yeah. More and more people have opted for the flexibility and experience of living in a mobile home. They have so many benefits, but they are not safe to be in during a tornado even if they're strapped down. Most tornado deaths are mobile home residents and the reports are actually sad and they're very scary to read. (laughs) Because I mentioned the Wizard of Oz before, so that image of a house flying through the air, yeah, it's that. It's, It's what can happen to mobile homes, basically. And the victims are often not found in the place they sheltered. Ideally, you have a storm shelter or a planned retreat at a permanent building. You also do not want to be in a car It's easily lifted or flipped by a tornado, or it's also easily impaled by debris. Stay away from overpasses. They become super dangerous wind tunnels. Yeah, the impalement risk in there is also really high. Anything else about tornadoes? I think that's most of it. On water, they're a water spout. I've seen tornadoes before at a distance, but I've seen more water spouts on the Cape and also on cruises. I think I have some pictures of that too. As I understand it, water spouts are also the leading cause of a sharknado. I'm kidding, obviously. You don't want that. That last bit was a joke. I've never had the very, very terrifying experience. I have, I have sheltered in, during a watch before or a warning, but I have never, I've never had a scary sheltering tornado experience. It's so scary. The deadliest tornado was the Tri-State Tornado on 18th of March, 1925. The tornado was about three quarter of a mile wide and traveled across Missouri, Missouri, uh, Illinois, and Indiana. It traveled at a speed of 59 miles per hour or 95 kilometers per hour. And newer research suggests that of the 219 total miles traveled, so that's what again, like, um, 450 kilometers, a staggering 174 miles was continuous. It just touched down and kept going and kept going and kept going, causing almost 700 deaths and destroying over 15,000 properties. 
There weren't any warning systems back then or classifications, but it has since been classified as an EF5, obviously. It uh, also has the record for being the longest tornado. The longest, I think it was the longest tornado traveling-wise, because it touched down and it traveled for, what did we just say? A hundred and, I'm trying to figure out what that is, because... 219 total miles, yeah. So, and then we have a month uh, with the most tornadoes in that month, and that was during April of 2011, during the super outbreak with nearly 350 tornadoes in four days, ranging from Texas to Canada. It's crazy. On 27th of April alone, there were 207 tornadoes, and four of those were rated EF5. You might get four of those uh, or C's per season, but not per day. At the end of that day, almost 3,000 people were injured and 319 people were killed. I don't know why I find tornadoes the scariest. They are scary. They are so scary. All right. Next up, hurricanes. Well, they're hurricanes in the USA, but in the Philippines and the North Pacific, they're called typhoons. And if you're in the South Pacific, you're calling it a cyclone, but we're all talking about the same thing. So I'm mostly going to be talking about hurricanes. These storms start as a tropical depression and then graduate to a tropical storm. And then once we hit 74 miles an hour or 119 kilometers an hour, you've got yourself a hurricane. These storms are named and those names are reused, I think, every six years unless the storm is bad enough to retire. What I mean by that is we're never going to have another Hurricane Katrina, for example, right? That name has been retired. Major hurricanes have winds of at least 111 miles an hour, which is... 178 kilometers an hour and can reach speeds of over 180 miles an hour or 289 kilometers an hour and can have gusts of up to or in, or more than, as has been the case, 200 miles an hour or 321 kilometers an hour. So very, very windy. The deadliest tropical cyclone in the history of the world is, as far as we know, is the Great Bola cyclone, which struck Bangladesh in 1970 and caused as many as half a million fatalities. We won't know the exact number, which is generally the case when we're talking about these really, really big numbers, right? Because so many people are just gone forever. The worst ever was 2013, recorded at least. 2013, Typhoon Haiyan, which struck the Philippines with maximum sustained winds at landfall, measuring 195 miles an hour or 314 kilometers an hour. So, sustained winds, constant 200 mile an hour winds. Crazy. Mm. It was among the most powerful tropical cyclones ever recorded, if not the most powerful to strike land. This is what we know about hurricanes from weather.gov. These are the dangers. This is what they say we need to be careful of. The first is your storm surge. That's an abnormal rise of water generated by the winds from the storm. Historically, storm surge is the leading cause of hurricane-related deaths in the United States. This causes maximum destruction along the coast. Storm surge can travel several miles inland, especially along bays, rivers, and estuaries. 
Storm surge is like bull sharks, right? You're not safe, even in a river. Flooding from heavy rains is the second leading cause of fatality from landfalling tropical cyclones. Widespread torrential rain associated with these storms often cause flooding hundreds of miles inland, which can persist for several days after a storm has ended. Winds from hurricane destroy buildings and manufactured homes. Signs, roofing material, and other items left outside can become flying missiles. Tornadoes often accompany landfalling tropical cyclones, and they typically occur in rain bands away from the center of the storm. And lastly, dangerous waves produced by a tropical cyclone's strong winds can produce significant hazard to coastal residents and mariners. These waves can cause deadly rip currents, beach erosion, and damage to structures, even when the storm is more than a thousand miles offshore. So, the most common cause of death, as we said, is drowning due to the storm surge, and that's followed by blunt force trauma due to wind or collapsing buildings. Hurricanes are sort of like a combination tsunami and tornado. If you think of a tornado and a tsunami as the acute versions, a hurricane is sort of the chronic, right? So you've got circling wind, but instead of a real tight tornadic formation, it's a huge, massive circular system with a calm eye in the center. The destruction after Hurricane Katrina, just for size information, this fact really stuck with me. So the destruction after Hurricane Katrina covered an area roughly the size of Great Britain. And when Haiyan hit, part of the problem was that all of the first responders were also destroyed. So everything was obliterated, things were demolished, it was a shambles, but also there were no emergency responders because they were all hit, right? It was very reminiscent of the 2010 Haiti earthquake. And again, you find yourself in just a terrible situation with temporary morgues, burials, and mass graves. And we haven't even touched on the disease after effects after these events. They have a huge impact on the world. And hurricanes, interestingly, do have a purpose. We, we talk about the earth sort of being a living, breathing, moving thing. And the purpose of these hurricanes is to move heat around the globe. The, the, the earth is trying to disperse heat. And so as we're warming, I think these are just going to keep getting more frequent and, and severe. When the Galveston hurricane happened, the storm surge covered the entire island with 8 to 15 feet of water. So many people saw this in Katrina as well, as we were just saying, that was probably some of the most televised hurricane footage around the world, right? And a staggering 90% of deaths in hurricanes are caused by that storm surge. Unlike a tsunami, you know when a storm surge is headed your way. Meteorologists will be predicting these tropical depressions and warning you in advance. And this advance warning allows people to try and prepare for the approaching wind and water in a way that they just can't do for tornadoes or tsunamis or earthquakes, right? When one of these storms is coming, you want to clear your yard of furniture, toys, anything that can fly away, because it will. Don't think of it as like, wow, it would really suck if I lost an umbrella. Think of it more like, wow, it would really suck if my umbrella flew up and flew pole first into my neighbor's window, killing him. You know, that is what having a worst case scenario brain, it helps you, you know, you can see how things could go catastrophically wrong because they do. If you're told to evacuate, and we cannot stress this enough, go. One of the hardest lessons learned during Hurricane Katrina and what we were just sort of touching on was that importance of being able to evacuate. And we want to be very clear that we are in 
no way victim blaming anyone who has been affected and trapped by a storm like this. I think it's really easy to say, well, why did they just leave? You know, this wouldn't happen if they just left. The thing is, people tend to try to stay at home where they feel safest for as long as they can. And right. there might be different, different factors at play here. Sick family members uh, trying to protect your property from looters, for example. Mm -hmm. I think that's also a reason why many people really would prefer to stay at home. Not having the, the means, not having a vehicle to leave, roads being blocked already by traffic jam, pets. Yeah, I would never, never, or we would never blame people with the, well, why didn't they just leave? That's right. I think that's a tough decision to make, to leave your home. And it was yeah. an incredible, in Katrina's case, it was just so complicated, right? Like you said, because a lot of people did leave. They went to where they were supposed to go, to the Superdome. And that didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. No. You know, it's just like I was saying last week, it's the lessons we learn. We have to do better. Each time there's a storm, we learn, hopefully, how to do better. And the United States is lucky because we're a pretty wealthy nation. And so we can afford to put money into this kind of infrastructure. But it still shocks me that like Tornado Alley basements aren't a normal thing. Hopefully with this episode, it has given you a little bit of time to sort of think, you know, where would you go in case of an emergency? It's worth thinking about really. Where would you go? What would your plan be? Who do you know that you could go to with your pets if you needed to? I mean, my house, obviously. If you shelter in place, which is what we've always done during hurricanes, then after you get any debris out of your yard, take your flags down, put your furniture away. You might want to board up your windows or put tape on them to avoid flying glass. My family growing up always had well water, which meant that when the electricity goes out, the water also does not work because the pumps don't work. So. We would always fill the bathtubs with water before a storm, and we would use the bathtub water for flushing toilets. Also, the dog liked to hang over the edge and drink out of it, so that was fine. If you have it like a small pot, FYI, you can scoop the water up and pour it quickly into a toilet to flush it if there's no water still yeah. coming into the house. Make sure you have plenty of candles and are prepared for a long power outage. Be sure to have plenty of bottled water, batteries flashlights and so forth. You experienced a hurricane in Mexico, right? Yeah, so this was the only natural disaster I've ever been in. Thank God. I mean, I know most people haven't experienced one, but yeah, I've been in a hurricane. That was Hurricane Wilma that hit the Riviera Maya in October of 2005. It was super scary. And I think it was even more scary for my family at home. So for those of you who don't know, Hurricane Wilma was the most intense tropical cyclone ever recorded in the Atlantic Basin. It formed in the Caribbean Sea and became a powerful Category 5 hurricane, and it rapidly intensified, reaching Category 5 status with sustained winds of 295 kilometers per hour or 185 miles per hour. For everyone who doesn't know Cancun, so the tourists usually stay in the so-called hotel zone which is a narrow strip of land between the ocean on one side and the lagoon on the other side. So which means there's water on both sides. Now imagine that during a hurricane. At the time I was there as a tourist, that was before I moved there. I was visiting friends, but I was staying at the hotel zone. And the hotel zone had to be evacuated. I was fortunate I could bunker up with friends downtown. 
And it was scary. It was scary. So there was no electricity, obviously, no running water. The whole hurricane, it took three days until it passed. The scariest part was those few hours in the eye of the hurricane. That was surreal, honestly. And then you know that you will have to go through another one and a half days of storm because that's how long it took for, for you to reach the center of the hurricane, mm -hmm. right? And, oh my God, so much was destroyed in the hotels. And there were hotels that the water was up until the fourth or fifth floor yeah. that came in. What else do I remember? I was stuck in Cancun for three weeks or so. Uh, I then finally, after three weeks, I could catch a flight out of it uh, back to Mexico City. And then I called a flight to Frankfurt. And my family was so glad once I was back home. At 20, you're so stupid and naive and like, I mean, it was an adventure, but oh my God, nothing can happen to me. But my poor family was at home. <laughs> I called them one day and I say, I'm sorry, this is going to be the last you're going to hear from me for a while because there's a, a hurricane is going to hit. And I remember we were watching the hurricane approach and everybody was like, it's not going to hit. It's not going to hit. It's going to turn. It didn't. It hit. And so I called my family and was like, I have to leave the hotel. I'm not going to be able to call you for a while. I don't know when I can call you again. That's so scary. Yeah. It's so scary. And then back then, it wasn't like... Not like today. News channels. Yeah. And it was, you know, a hurricane in, in Mexico is not very interesting to news channels over here. Right. So every time the news were on, my mom was just glued in front of the TV trying to see what was going on. And then I think it took me like a week, five to seven days until I found, finally found um, um public phone to call them. Right. Wow. So yeah, it was scary. It was yeah. scary. Uh, do not recommend. No. No, the, we, I have fond memories of the eye as a kid. There was a hurricane we had as a kid where I remember, and again, don't do this. You're not supposed to do this. But we used to have like eye parties. So like everyone on the street, not like a party, but everyone on the street basically came out during the eye. And like all the parents, I was a kid and I remember all the parents were like having a beer and just like you, everyone okay, like checking in with one another yeah. to make sure everybody was doing all right. Nobody needed anything, which is actually... Smart, I think, as long as you're sure you're in the eye and things are calm. It is wild, though, yeah. when things are calm. It's, um, it's kind of creepy. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, the worst for us was probably Hurricane Bob. We had just moved to the Cape and we had so many trees fell. I love storms. I love them. So like you were saying with the, the news about the hurricane, I love, I love the preparation getting ready for a hurricane. I just love watching when a hurricane is coming. I want to watch nothing but the news. I want to track the hurricane. I want to know where Jim Cantor is. I love it. But when Bob hit, my dad and I were about to go get in the car to drive down to the beach, because which you're not supposed to, don't do it. And my mother's like, stay in the house, you two. It's so dangerous. And then a tree fell on my dad's car. So we were like, fine, we'll stay. <laughs> That's a sign, yeah. <laughs> I think my parents lost like 20 trees. Their house is on an acre, but it's mostly wooded, and so many trees fell, but thankfully not on the house. We didn't have any power, I want to say, a couple of weeks. I know it was over a week. We used the grill. I just remember using the grill to cook all of our food, because it's not mm. like you could go anywhere to get dinner. You couldn't go out to eat. Nothing. Nowhere had yeah. power. And I remember going to the grocery store, and they had a generator for some of their stuff, but... I remember the, the things you remember, right? These funny memories. Going to the grocery store and it was a lady with a calculator, like a battery operated calculator and a flashlight. 
And it was like, oh, shit, we're going to be here for, for a while. It's, uh, yeah, we had to go visit my aunt to take a shower. So for all of these storms, it's key to remember that you need good functioning smoke and carbon monoxide alarms. We're going to say it and again, stay away from windows. Have an emergency kit. This kit will vary depending on who you are and where you live, but it should contain several days of water and food and medical supplies and medications for you and your pets. Don't panic. Have a battery-operated radio, flashlight, charged power banks. Today, it's amazing the things that we can kind of do, you know? Be sure your cars are full of gas and know where all the emergency shutoffs are in your home. Do you have any emergency tips to share with us because we would love to hear them and we'd love to hear your stories if you've like survived stuff we want to hear all of it i think this would be a really interesting listener episode my husband's favorite tip is he always always takes the time to back into the garage or back into the driveway because if there's an emergency he wants to be able to leave in a hurry that's my husband as well yeah always back up the car and always have at least half a tank in your car For me, ever since I was living in Mexico, I turned kind of a little bit paranoid after that experience. So ever since then, I always have emergency rations at home. Always, always. Uh, Something I don't need to cook, like uh, cookies, crackers, canned peaches, stuff like that, right? Also, I bought a buttload of different sized candles and they are stored away safely that I never touch. Uh, always batteries, always the, the gas, the propane thing for the for the grill outside, because as you said, you would be able to cook on that at least something in a worst case scenario. You're right about the medicine. I need to take my Euthyrox, my um, thyroid uh, replacement hormone every day. And I always make sure to have at least for one month at home that I never touch while well, I rotate it through to not have it expired. Mostly yeah. I have more at home, but at least for a month. I always have um, dog food at home stored. Yes. Always, always. We always have extra dog food. Yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, I'm very, since, yeah, I think that since Mexico, that, that really has kind of left an impression on me. It would. <laughs> because I realized how long it took for stores to open up. Like there was I remember after 10 days, I found like a truck on the side of the road selling eggs and I bought like 20 eggs or something like this. And it, I, it was amazing, like, wow. to find eggs. Yours was yeah. much more serious than mine. Mine was not, uh, mine was not anywhere near as severe as yours. Your situation was a lot more harrowing than mine. Mine was more, ooh, this is an adventure, you know. Yeah, I also remember, I think there were two fatalities mm. in Cancun in the hotel zone from um, two security guards died who had stayed behind to take care of the hotel, keep them safe from losers. They died. That's awful. That's so sad and frustrating, too. Another tip a friend told me or I read somewhere was to keep a cup of frozen water in the freezer. And then before a big storm is due, she puts a coin on top of it. Because if you lose power, you don't touch your fridge, your fridge right? You leave all the doors shut and you just pray it stays cold enough and nothing spoils. And so then when she's able to open the fridge again and the freezer, she can tell if the ice has melted and refrozen and if everything needs to be tossed based on where that coin is, which I think is smart, smart, right? So yeah, if you have any tips, we'd love to hear them. Or survival stories, we'd love to hear those. I love storms, but I'm saying that from a, I love a a category one hurricane, you know? What do you mean? A category five is... Having like a heavy rain thunderstorm going on, a non... non dangerous one 
bundling up at home with a good book and, and a fire. It's my favorite. Is there something nicer than that? I love it. I love storm weather, which is why I'm so angry. The migraines, my migraines are storm related. Yeah. So that's, that's our primer on emergency safety. We'll be doing a snow one soon, but spring is coming. So we felt like we should talk more tornadoes. And <laughs> True. We'll, we'll talk about blizzards and avalanche another time. Uh, avalanche is important also here. We're living in the Alps. Yeah. So, well, I'm not living in the Alps, but, you know, Austria is, has a big part of it is in the Alps. Yes. We have sometimes avalanches, yeah. Scary. Avalanche. Do you have something good? Do you have something good? Yes, I do. Yeah. I really do have something good. So, uh, my birthday was on Tuesday. And Happy birthday! It, <laughs> that's not my something good, though. My something good is that for my birthday, I realized that something, something that I found over the last couple of years that I didn't have when I was like a teenager or 20 years old, and that is strong female friendship. I really didn't have a lot of female friends and it always was kind of, you know, backstabby and, and these kind of things. And the, the thing is, I think me too, I had to grow and grow up and, and become like a more kind of, I don't know, grow as a person to appreciate female friends. But now that I have them, I think they are the most amazing thing. And I'm so thankful that I have you. You're one of my best female friends. Oh. I have Ingrid who sent me a birthday package with a, with a cake and stuff like that. And the most amazing stuff in there and a really nice card. I have my friend Linda who also sent me the loveliest message on my birth. And it's just like, I was so blessed to mm. have female friends now in my life, late in life, yeah. because I know some have their female friends for decades and decades. I don't have that, but I found a core group of friends. That's amazing. It's so important. I appreciate Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mine for this episode is going to be first responders. This episode, I really wanted to talk, I really wanted to talk about these things because my bonus dad, my birth mom's husband, passed away. And as I said before, you know, his life's work was, was emergency safety. And so thank you. Just the most sincere thank you to all of the first responders, the ambulances, the police, the fire department, the volunteers. The volunteers. Yes. And and remember how much good there is out there. You know, there was a lot of bad mm. stuff that went down. Katrina is an easy one to point at. But there was also the Cajun Navy going out in their little boats and saving people and their pets from flood water. You know, yeah. there's a lot of good in the world. And as I said before, try to think of it as, you know, we're all trying to beat the house. Uh, we're all in this together. We're all trying to get out of this alive. And... Jim was such a kind and generous spirit that I just want to keep that in, in my heart and in my mind and send the most sincere thank you out to everybody who risks their life to help someone else. We see you and we appreciate Absolutely. you. So thank you, National Guard, military, fire, police. Who am I forgetting? I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. Thank you. And that's it. Please, if you have a minute, go check with your favorite podcast app if you can leave us a rating and or 
review. You can do it on iTunes. You can answer the little question after each episode on Spotify. You can leave us a little um, comment under our YouTube videos. What else? Uh, Patreon. Go to patreon.com or check on our webpage freshhelpodcast.com. You'll find our merch store. Our email address is freshhelppodcast at gmail.com. Send us your survivor stories. Send us your stories where somebody maybe helped you or you helped someone. Really interested in that. And that's it. Please tell your pets we said hi. Please take care. You have an emergency plan. Think about where you go with them. Think about who could take care of them. Think about what they need in case of um, a lockdown because of emergency or natural disaster. Be kind to them. Be kind to your fellow human being. We're all a community out there. And most importantly and very hard, be kind to yourself. And as Winston Churchill once famously said during World War II, if you are going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye.